0: Welcome to Season 6, Episode 3 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer by diving deeply into the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Anne Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week during Season 6, one of us will pitch a story we want to analyze in order to get to the bottom of the specific story principle we're studying. The rest of us will analyze it according to our chosen topics, and together we'll deepen our knowledge and level up our craft. This week, I'm looking at Whiplash in order to study Forces of Antagonism. This 2014 music performance film was written and directed by Damien Chazelle. Now, this is an adult conversation, so you will definitely hear adult words, and you're going to hear it in the clips from the film, too. And before we begin, I want to give you a content warning. Whiplash is about a music teacher who believes that mental, emotional, and even physical assault will help a student become a great musician. Scenes of violence make it anxious and possibly triggering to watch. The character uses very strong language, including homophobic, anti-Semitic, and misogynistic slurs as well as huge amounts of swearing. So if you're going to stay with us, here we go. (laughs) In the beginning hook, Andrew Neiman is a first-year music student at the Schaefer Conservatory in New York. When Terrence Fletcher, a band leader he admires, offers him a spot in the studio band, Andrew must decide whether he'll accept or not. He accepts and is humiliated in the first rehearsal. In the middle build. Having been humiliated by Fletcher, Andrew decides to dedicate himself even more to developing his craft. As you'd expect from a performance story, the middle build is preoccupied with the training. When the city bus breaks down on the way to the Dunellen music competition, Andrew must decide whether he'll find another way to the event or forfeit his opportunity to perform as the core drummer of the studio band. Andrew rents a car, and after a series of events that continue to ramp up the tension to an almost unbearable level, including a car crash in which Andrew suffers a head and hand injury, Andrew goes on stage but is unable to play. When Fletcher throws him out of the band, he suffers a mental break, is dismissed from Schaefer entirely, and reports Fletcher's abuse to authorities. And in the ending payoff... Fletcher offers Andrew a chance to play in his new band at the JVC competition. When Andrew realizes that Fletcher has set him up to fail and to be publicly humiliated, he must decide whether he will walk away from music entirely, forever, or go back on stage and show what he can do. Andrew goes back on stage and for the first time in the film, he takes control over Fletcher and his music. During his performance, he self-transcends and his genius shines through. He finally earns Fletcher's respect.
1: I felt like this film was an amazing example of performance and status together. They both reside in the esteem tank. And this is one of those times when they're so tightly woven that it was really hard for me to tell where one stops and the other begins. And it just makes for an overall, just a very rich storytelling experience. It's definitely a masterwork to study.
2: It is, I agree. It was a very tough film for me to watch and I had to overcome some genuine, real live anxiety witnessing close up this man with this really scary face yelling abuse at these powerless young people. And I know I'm not alone in that. Other people have mentioned it. Whiplash is one of those movies I'd never have watched except for my roundtable buddies insisting. And so thank you because it was worth watching and I ended up getting a lot out of it just from looking at one basic story grid fundamental, Objects of Desire, which I will be talking about shortly, but please never make me watch this movie again.
0: <laughs> Fair enough, Anne. <laughs> Alrighty, here we go. This week, I'm continuing my study of forces of antagonism. And with Whiplash, we have the first instance of an external villain as the main antagonist. One quick note before I begin. If you recall, from the episodes I did on narrative drive, I said then that as a general rule, while one story may be primarily in one form of narrative drive, the other two forms were usually present as well. Here with the forces of antagonism, I'm seeing the same kind of thing come up where one type of antagonist prevails over the story, but the other two types pop up as well. In Whiplash, the external villain dominates, and that's what I'm going to focus on. I chose this film because I really hate Fletcher. Like, I mean, I loathe this man. And I'm hard-pressed to think of another film, except maybe Mommy Dearest, that causes me to react so strongly to an antagonist or one that makes me feel so good when the protagonist finally triumphs. So this week, I want to find out why this story evokes such a strong emotion in me. How did Damien Chazelle do it? Why do I hate Fletcher so much? And why do I feel such catharsis at the end? Now, this is another huge topic, and I'll cover it as best I can in the time I have today, but this is something I'll be coming back to in my inner circle. There's a wealth of information to be mined in this film. So if you wanna find out more, you can go to ValerieFrancis.ca slash inner circle to sign up. For today, I'm gonna focus on the antagonist's role in creating an emotional connection between the audience and the story, by specifically looking at empathy and shape-shifting characters. Let's start with empathy. Last season, I looked at this in some detail, and I said that the protagonist doesn't have to be likable, but that the audience does have to empathize. And an example of this is the character of Melvin Udall in As Good As It Gets. In Whiplash, Andrew Neiman is instantly likable, but empathy is also established right from the opening scene. Here we have a first-year music student minding his own business, practicing his craft late into the night. He is not bothering anyone. He's just doing his thing. He's working hard to better himself. We find out later that he's the alternate drummer for B-Band. So he's pretty much the lowest guy in the school. But his goal, his conscious want, or his external object of desire is to be one of the greatest drummers in the world, on par with Buddy Rich. Fletcher enters the practice room, and his status is obvious, and basically he's messing with Andrew's head. In this two-minute scene, Fletcher comes off as an asshole, like a complete arsehole. He's obviously arrogant and the antagonist, but the audience doesn't yet have an idea of the extent of his brutality. But that's okay. I mean, this is the opening two minutes of the show. All this scene needs to do is establish what the story is about and who these two characters are, and it does it very well. The question here is, how does Fletcher contribute to establishing the empathy we feel for Andrew? And the answer is that he doesn't merely contribute to it, he creates it. Yes, we already admire Andrew's work ethic and his dedication to his craft, but the interaction with Fletcher underscores it. He demands that Andrew prove his talent by playing his rudiments and then the double-time swing. Fletcher makes Andrew feel stupid, and we can all relate to feeling that way. We've all been intimidated by someone we admire, (coughs) Sean, (laughs) and we all have been terrified of looking like an idiot in front of them. Andrew wants to impress this man. He refers to Fletcher as sir, and later in the film, his father comments on how important Fletcher's opinion is to Andrew. When Fletcher insults him by calling him a wind-up monkey and then walks out as he's giving it all he's got, we pity Andrew. He does not deserve to be treated this way. And we automatically connect to the injustice of all this. What Fletcher is doing is not fair. So from the opening scene, the audience has chosen sides. We are team Andrew all the way. We do not like this Fletcher guy. And we're already hoping that somehow, some way, Andrew's going to get a chance to wipe that smug look off Fletcher's face. And this is just the starting point of the film. Chazelle ratchets the tension up from here, and there are some parts of the story that are so intense, it's almost hard to watch. There's a whole power of ten study to be done on this film, and maybe I'll do that for the inner circle too. But suffice it to say that Andrew does indeed get his chance to wipe the smug look from Fletcher's face. And it is delicious. The audience, or at least me, absolutely savors it. Empathy continues to deepen for Andrew, Right to the ending payoff. Fletcher admits to wandering the halls of the practice rooms late at night searching for a player to develop. So effectively, Fletcher is a predator, and Andrew is a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young man eager to make his mark on the world. Andrew is a sitting duck from start to finish. Alright, let's look at shapeshifters next. When I studied psychological thrillers and stories with a psychological element, one of the common things I noticed is that these kinds of stories have a whole cast of shape-shifting characters. The more, the better. And logically, that makes sense. If the story is about or involves the psychological decline of the protagonist, then these shape-shifting characters serve to destabilize her. It makes her question what's real and what's not real, who she should trust and who she shouldn't trust. For example, In Black Swan, Nina's mother should be a mentor, right? But she isn't. She is also an antagonist. Thomas and Lily should likewise be mentor and ally respectively, but they too are antagonists. In Whiplash, we have the same thing happening. Fletcher, as the teacher, should be Andrew's mentor. In fact, that's the assumption Andrew is working from right until the end of the middle build. Oh sure, he knows Fletcher is tough and an asshole and abusive, but he accepts it because he's still seeing him as a mentor. He's still working from the fundamental belief that Fletcher is a mentor and therefore in his corner. And isn't this the nature of abusive relationships? We see a person in a particular role and assume that the person therefore embodies the traits we believe go with that role. We see a spouse as a partner. As someone who is in our corner, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. We believe parents are our protectors and provide unconditional love. We assume religious leaders are spiritual people who protect us. We assume teachers are nurturing and are there to bring out the best in a student. Well, what happens when this isn't the case? What happens when the person we believed was one thing turns out to be another? well, it messes with our heads. And worse, it causes the people around us to doubt our stories and question our sanity when we speak up, because they too are working from the assumption that the person in question embodies the traits that are generally believed to go along with the role that they play. This has been the foundation for the psychological decline for the protagonists in The Girl on the Train, Black Swan, Primal Fear, and now Whiplash. It's powerful stuff. So, How does Fletcher's role as a shape-shifting mentor villain contribute to the story? Well, it actually drives the entire story. Fletcher walks on screen about a minute into the film, and from that moment until the final few minutes when Andrew comes back on stage at the JVC performance, Fletcher is in control. Andrew is nothing more than his plaything. Now, he isn't passive, but it's still the most heartbreaking game of cat and mouse I've ever seen. Valerie, I spotted another
2: shapeshifter motif in this film, and that's that Andrew also shows signs of shapeshifting almost against himself, you might say, in a number of key scenes, especially that dinner table scene and also the scene where he breaks up with his girlfriend. He takes on milder versions of Fletcher's style, his way of judging people and berating people around him. He's extremely rude to both his cousins, his family members at the table, and the girlfriend. And I think Andrew's own partial transformation into a kind of Fletcher is a key part of the story. And there's one odd little moment that I think everybody probably noticed at 37 minutes in where a very small man, presumably the stage manager, comes into the green room right before the big performance and Fletcher shouts at him extremely rudely for no apparent reason, calling him mini-me. And I felt that that otherwise unnecessary moment, it seems to be an unnecessary moment in the story, was the filmmaker's way Of pointing to Andrew's own transformation, at least partially, into a Fletcher himself later in the story.
0: Yeah, and I would call that Andrew's internal shadow coming to the surface, right? So this would be his internal antagonist. And I agree with you, but I'm not focusing on that because, I mean, I would just talk for the whole hour and you guys would never get to say a thing. (laughs) Uh, And one of the things, somewhere along the line, I heard Christopher Vogler say, or I read in something that he wrote, that in a really well-crafted story, all of the characters, the cast of characters embody each of these archetypical roles. And I needed to be told that, like it didn't occur to me naturally. I didn't figure it out on my own. But once I read that, I started to notice it in a lot of stories, particularly these psychological stories. So yeah, I think you're right on the money there. Okay. So you've heard Sean and other people say that the middle bill belongs to the villain, right? Well, in whiplash, because Fletcher is a shapeshifter, the whole story belongs to the villain, and it's a very effective strategy for hooking an audience and keeping them engaged until the bitter end. Where Fletcher leads, Andrew follows because he believes his teacher has his best interest at heart. Doesn't occur to him that Fletcher is actually a sadistic bastard, although he is. Even in the ending payoff, after Andrew has lost everything, and after he thinks he's made Fletcher pay, He falls into Fletcher's trap again. Because remember, Andrew's object of desire is unwavering. Fletcher knows it and he uses it against him. Yes, at the end of the middle build, Andrew throws his music away and he stores his kit and all that kind of stuff. But the dream is still alive. He still wants to be the next Buddy Rich. He just doesn't think it's in the cards for him. And his father's words of, you know, it's just life and there are other options start to rattle around in his head. We can clearly see the emotional and psychological toll that this adventure is having on Andrew. He is coming unraveled, and he even risks his life for the chance to perform. From the midpoint shift when Fletcher yells at Andrew to earn the part to play Caravan, to the end of the middle build when Andrew was kicked out of Schaefer. Oh, its I mean, it's almost unbearable to watch. The marathon drum-off, for lack of a better term, between Andrew Tanner and Conley I mean, that's hard enough, but the Donnellan competition is beyond tense. If you want to figure out how to increase the stakes and build tension in your story, man, just look at the middle build of Whiplash. Talk about being on the edge of your seat. Fletcher has pushed Andrew to the breaking point. He did it to his previous student, Sean, who we learned committed suicide as a result of the anxiety and depression brought on by Fletcher, And when we get that little bit of information, our minds reel back to the exchange Andrew observed between Fletcher and that little girl in the hallway. And this creates a feeling of absolute terror in us because we know that unless Fletcher is stopped, that little girl is doomed to suffer the same fate as Andrew and Sean. Oh, it's just so much to take in. It's not until Andrew realizes that Fletcher has set him up at the JVC performance And he's been publicly humiliated that he sees Fletcher for truly who he is. I'd be remiss here if I didn't also point out that this low point for the global external genre performance story coincides with the high point of Andrew's internal status story. And this is what Kim was talking about a few minutes ago. And this relationship between external and internal genres happens in Black Swan, The Girl on the Train, The Silence of the Lambs, Pride and Prejudice, and all other really well constructed stories. Finally, to clue up here, I want to point out that we need to remember that the villain is the hero of his own story. The antagonist has to have a point. We don't need to agree with his tactics, and we sure don't agree with Fletcher's, or at least I don't, but his objects of desire have to make just as much sense to us As the protagonists and there's a brilliant example of this in whiplash let's take a listen
3: truth is i don't think people understood what it was i was doing at schaefer i wasn't there to conduct any fucking moron can wave his arms and keep people in tempo i was there to push people beyond what's expected of them i believe that is an absolute necessity Otherwise, we're depriving the world of the next Louis Armstrong, the next Charlie Parker. I told you that story about how Charlie Parker became Charlie Parker, right? Yeah. Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head. Exactly. Parker's a young kid, pretty good on the sax, Gets up to play at a cutting session. And he fucks it up. And Jones nearly decapitates him for it. And he's laughed off stage cries himself to sleep that night but the next morning what does he do he practices and he practices and he practices with one goal in mind never to be laughed at again and a year later he goes back to the reno and he steps up on that stage and he plays the best motherfucking solo the world has ever heard so imagine if jones had just said well that's okay charlie i That was all right. Good job. Then Charlie thinks to himself, well, shit, I did do a pretty good job. End of story. No bird. That to me is an absolute tragedy. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good
1: job. But is there a line? You know, maybe you go too far and you discourage the next Charlie
3: Parker from ever becoming Charlie Parker. No, man, no. Because the next Charlie Parker would never be discouraged. Yeah. The truth is, Andrew, I never really had a Charlie Parker. But I tried. I actually fucking tried. And that's more than most people ever do. And I will never apologize for how I tried.
0: As much as I hate to admit it, Fletcher does have a point. And it's an excellent point at that. Society accepts mediocrity, but that doesn't cut it for people who want to be at the top of their field. Charlie Parker wouldn't have been the Charlie Parker that has gone down in music history without someone to bring out the best in him. I genuinely admire teachers who want to bring out the best in their students. And that's how Fletcher sees himself. I mean, I don't agree with his tactics, but the idea is there. He genuinely doesn't think there's anything wrong with his approach. And the irony here, and this just goes to how fine the writing is here in this film. The irony is that he and Andrew have the same goal. They both know that Andrew has it in him to be one of the best in the business, and they both want him to fulfill that destiny. Okay, that's enough for me. Leslie,
4: you're up. Okay, so I'm focusing on point of view and narrative device this season. And as I've said before, if genre is what your story is about, then the point of view and narrative device are how you present that story to your reader. So whether we're analyzing a story or thinking about our own story, a great place to start is with the problem that arises from the premise. Chazelle has said that he wants to illuminate the line between profession and obsession. And that means exploring what makes an artist or professional extraordinary. The primary answer to that question, of course, is work or practice and sacrifice, The problem with the premise is that practice is repetitive and usually happens in isolation, which isn't very interesting for readers or viewers. So how is that problem solved in this film? By focusing on the relationship between the student and the mentor. Of course, the mentor is also an important requirement of becoming extraordinary and has a great impact on this line between profession and obsession. Now, on its face, this is a solid choice for the story. A subsidiary problem is how do you help the story consumer, the reader or viewer, feel the real conflicts and stakes in pursuit of extraordinary performance? How can you illuminate an area of life that most people don't have access to? Will you amplify the typical events beyond reality? Just like stage makeup is a lot more intense than everyday application because the lighting would make it invisible. Chazelle said he wanted this to play as a thriller and I think he really hit the mark. I read an interview with a music school professor who talked about what's realistic in the film and what's not. The tears and sweat are real, but the level of bleeding we see is not. Calluses and popped blisters happen, yes, but bleeding on the drum, not so much. But the blood and the way it's presented shows us where Andrew is at in his journey and helps us experience what it's like to have that kind of pressure. In Bridget Jones's diary, the cigarettes and alcohol are used the same way. So here's my take on what the bodily fluids represent. Tears are a manifestation of the emotional toll this level of performance takes. The sweat is the normal physical effort one puts in to become good. Now, Tanner and Connolly are willing to sweat. So then the blood is the extraordinary physical and emotional effort and sacrifice that Andrew chooses to endure to become extraordinary. Another element is that the long hours and struggle to find balance are real, but the -the over-the-top abusive mentor-student relationship is not. This exaggeration creates the subjective experience and helps us really feel the pressure of this performance environment. Okay, so those are the problems and the way that Chazelle solves them. What's the controlling idea and how does it all come together? The typical controlling idea in a performance story is we gain respect when we commit to expressing our gifts unconditionally. In this story, we have a positive ending. Andrew gains respect by the end, both self-respect and some level of second and third party validation for his effort. We can discuss whether, as one critic put it, Andrew has lost his humanity, but he's definitely achieved respect and esteem or positive regard on multiple levels by the end of the story.
1: Yeah, I thought the look on Andrew's father's face as he watched him in that final solo performance was really incredible. It was like he had no idea what his son was truly capable of. And it just it was a small moment, but it really stuck out to me. And I think this question of whether or not Andrew has lost his humanity in pursuit of his dream is really interesting. It's not unlike Black Swan, where the pursuit of perfection carries this great cost, right? Nina, to me, does lose her humanity in pursuit of her goal. But for me, Andrew doesn't. I was just so glad that he came back out on stage in the end. But for Nina, I wasn't. I just wanted her to live. And I guess that's, you know, the line for me when it comes to performance stories is that life or death.
4: These are great observations, Kim. I mean, if you lose your life, you only get that one perfect performance and then that's it. Back to the controlling idea. What does that other element, that of committing to expressing one's gifts unconditionally mean here? How does Andrew do this? Well, Andrew needs to learn to navigate the relationship with his mentor and pursue excellence for positive self-regard, not for Fletcher's approval. Mentors are necessary, but if the mentor fails or betrays the protagonist, the student must transcend the mentor. In the beginning, Andrew does whatever Fletcher tells him to do to the best of his ability, and when Fletcher betrays him, Andrew must choose whether to accept shame or achieve self regard. What does that look like as a practical matter? Well, in the middle build, when Fletcher betrays Andrew at the competition, he lashes out and then chooses to give up his pursuit of respect. Of course, Andrew can't quite manage giving it up. And this really reminds me of the end of The Hurt Locker, which only strengthens the connection between war and performance stories that Anne has mentioned before. But in the ending payoff, when Fletcher betrays Andrew, he chooses to go back on stage and sacrifice to express his gift as opposed to pleasing his mentor. So the specific controlling idea for this story is... We gain respect when we actively choose to sacrifice our need for the mentor's regard and express our gifts unconditionally for ourselves. Now I want to turn to the narrative device and point of view. As I've mentioned before, when we have a covert narrative device, that is, when it's not openly revealed to the reader or audience member, and especially in film, we have to look for clues to determine the details of the narrative device and point of view. And this is kind of a subjective process. You actually might see something different. The point is to look closely at what is actually there, the details, the distance from which we are viewing them, etc. and imagine what the point of view and narrative device could be. So what's the point of view? I'm calling this objective omniscient. With close-up shots, we can see what Andrew and Fletcher are most likely thinking. So we're in the realm of omniscient point of view. But while the characters express opinions about what Andrew should do and about Fletcher and his methods, the storyteller doesn't tell us what they think or what we should think. When the storyteller wants to explore the line between positive and negative, this is an excellent approach. So, what's the narrative device? First, who's telling the story? I think it's someone like Chazelle who has been inside this world but now has some perspective from the outside about the experience. He can see the challenge that mentors and students face. And This narrating entity takes on the role of a threshold guardian in this case. To whom is the narrator telling the story? My best guess is that this story is for young artists and professionals to warn them that the road for the truly extraordinary artist requires deep sacrifice. And also, sometimes mentors are deeply selfish. If you are Tanner or Connolly, there's no shame in that, but realize it and adjust your goals accordingly. If you are Andrew, You need to figure out how to deal with the mentors who will betray you and the other challenges to come. Now, I see a secondary audience here too, and that includes people who are deeply appreciative of art, but aren't really familiar with what Sean calls planet performance. In other words, they're big fans, but they don't know the nature of the real sacrifice required to produce extraordinary art. And they should know that. And in what form does the narrative take? It's as if someone like the ghosts from A Christmas Carol are showing us particular events to help us illuminate this world, but they aren't commenting on the events. Now, here's a technique tip to make that translation from film to writing Camera angles are really useful, both as a very rough guide for what should be included in a paragraph, so in other words, when the camera moves, start a new paragraph, but also in terms of narrative distance. Are we close? Are we far away? Where are we seeing the events unfold from? Okay, why is the narrator telling the story? I think to illuminate the incredible sacrifice and get people to consider whether that sacrifice is worth it, both the artists and those who appreciate the art. We aren't meant to feel comfortable here. This is not Billy Elliot, though we get a sense of the pressures that that young dancer experiences in that story. If we were talking about football, we might be wondering whether traumatic brain injuries are worth the entertainment value. It's meant to make us think, in other words. So how well does the narrative device work in this story? I think it's brilliant. The story presented this way gives us a taste of what it's like to be in that world and under that kind of pressure, but we don't actually suffer the risks. And even though unspoken, the question comes through loud and clear, is this worth it? And the answer is not an easy one to come by.
0: Leslie, that's brilliant. Honestly, it really is. And those of you listening, if you haven't yet checked out Leslie's bite-sized episode on point of view and narrative device, make sure you do that. It is well worth your time. Okay, Kim, you're up and you're going to talk about the life
1: values, I believe. Yes, I'm going to be talking about life values in the beginning hook and also some stuff about setups and payoffs. The main question I'm studying this season is what information does the audience need to have before the inciting incident? In other words, what aspects of the status quo do you need to communicate to the audience? And how do you do that effectively, you know, without being boring? I want to bring in the concept of conventions and obligatory scenes today to aid our discussion. As you will have heard in one of the recent Bite sized episodes, conventions introduce characters, setting, and the means for conflict to occur. They show us the way things are, and they also establish the global life values. Obligatory scenes are moments of change events, revelations, decisions that shift the global life values and change things for the protagonist. Conventions are like nouns and act as setups, and obligatory scenes are like verbs and act as payoffs. So the global inciting incident is the first obligatory scene of any genre. It's commonly known as the call to adventure, and it's going to be genre-specific. In an action story, it's an attack by the villain. In a love story, it's the lovers' meet. And in a performance story, it's the opportunity to perform in whatever the subgenre medium is. In this case, art, music, drums. Now, this obligatory scene may not be the inciting incident of the beginning hook. In my experience, it's more likely the turning point progressive complication of the beginning hook. So, to restate my question, what information does the audience need to know before the global inciting incident, also known as the call to adventure? What conventions need to be introduced to set up this obligatory scene? How do we ensure that the life value shift in the obligatory scene really pays off? We want the audience to really feel the shift and experience it as a distinct before and after. You will notice that nearly every story has a high point of perceived victory right before the all is lost moment. This high, high makes the all is lost moment and the subsequent dark night of the soul that much more devastating because we can feel the change through the distinct before and after. Lara Willard is the author of one of my favorite story structure frameworks that she calls the eight C's of plotting. And she refers to this high point as elation followed by collapse and gloom, her words for the all is lost and the dark night of the soul. What I love about her model is that she identifies terms for both the event beat and then the protagonist's reaction, and this really creates this powerful cause and effect. Her model is a free download on her website and was a huge part of my story structure education on my path to discovering StoryGrid. There'll be a link in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. Okay, so back to the beginning hook of Whiplash. Let's take a listen to this opening scene. Andrew is drumming alone at a drum set in the practice room. He sees someone and stops, and the someone is Fletcher.
3: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, stay. What's your name? Andrew Naman sir. What year are you? I'm a uh, first year. You know who I am? Yes, sir. So you know I'm looking for players. Yes, sir. Then why did you stop playing? Did I ask you to start playing again? Uh, sorry, I asked I why numbers. you stopped playing and your version of an answer was to turn into a wind-up monkey. Sorry, I thought... Show me your rudiments. Yes, sir. Double-time swing. No, double-time. Double it. Back. Faster! Faster! Daisy. Forgot my jacket.
1: Now, this opening scene is brilliant in a number of ways. It acts as a microcosm of the entire global story. And it's an excellent mirror of that ending where Andrew takes control. And it introduces our primary conventions, characters. We see the protagonist, Andrew. We learn that he's a first year student. We see this mentor antagonist who is a music instructor of some kind, and we get a feel for who they are and how they are. Pro tip, when you're introducing a character, focus more on their internal elements, their thought, their character, and their fortune, their behavior, and their essential action, rather than on their characteristics like hair color and eye color and how tall they are, things that they can't control. We want to focus on the things they can control. And then how can those physical descriptions be an extension of their internal elements and their essential action? For example, Fletcher's all-black outfit. You know, it's very Steve Jobs or even, you know, Sean Coyne, right? They wear the same thing all the time. And it's a way to stay focused on their goals. They're not going to worry about frivolous matters like what to wear every day. They're going to wear the same thing all the time. It was just an interesting observation of people who are really in pursuit of something then we also have the setting we know that it's a school of some kind and by the end of the scene we learned that it's Schaefer Music Conservatory and later in the story we learned that it's the best school of its kind in the country also within this first scene we are introduced to a means of turning the plot and this is that Fletcher is looking for players this is going to be a setup for what comes later Also, this scene turns on the life values of respect and shame. Andrew is practicing. A mentor arrives that Andrew wants to impress. He desires respect from this person. Then the mentor shifts his demeanor and it's clear that respect is not easily won. Andrew's asked to perform his rudiments, his basics, paradiddles and whatnots, and then he's asked to perform double-time swing. And then he's corrected by his mentor. We really see Andrew struggling with his performance. He's really trying to focus. And then we hear the door close and Andrew's all alone in the room. The mentor has left. This is a turning point progressive complication of the scene. We've shifted from the opportunity for respect to shame. And then the last thing we see is Fletcher coming back in to grab his coat. He's, of course, a sadist and wants to harass Andrew one more time before he leaves. That's all part of his shtick and what he does. So I would say that this scene ends at the turning point progressive complication and the crisis and climax are actually set up for the rest of the story. It seems the crisis is, will Andrew continue the pursuit of his goal, even though he's had this setback in this scene? Is he willing to do the work? And we do. We see him practice. We see him continue and, of course, face Fletcher again and again. So just from this scene, we understand what kind of story this is. So let's put a pin in this scene for just a minute and let's keep going. The next scenes go like this. Later that night, he goes to the movie theater with dad and we get that introduction of another mentor, a different point of view. Then Andrew heads back to his dorm, but he doesn't join in the party and he just goes in and locks his door. So again, we're really seeing the kind of person that Andrew is. The next day at rehearsal with the B band, we see the conductor's laid back demeanor. And in this scene, there's a key moment that acts as a setup. The other player points out a shadow behind the door and we see that it's Fletcher's shadow and he's listening in. And then he walks away and the drummer, Connolly shakes his head and says, nah, not today. So, It's as if they know that Fletcher is listening in and they're waiting for him to come in, but today he doesn't. After rehearsal, Andrew walks by the A-band, the studio band's rehearsal, and Fletcher sees him peeking in and then Andrew just keeps walking by. Andrew goes into the practice room and he's trying that double time swing. He looks at a Buddy Rich picture and then he plays the CD of Birdland. So we know that he is committed to practicing. So now we're back in class. Andrew's playing this time. But he's off tempo and the conductor says, all right, that's enough of that. Let's get back to chord drums. And then the chord drummer Connolly takes over and says, dude, what have you been practicing? And at just that moment, the doors fly open and it's Fletcher. This is a payoff. Fletcher has been looking for players. So then he takes over the rehearsals and he runs through some quick auditions, very rude auditions. He goes through all the instruments and he's just super condescending and it's, again, really hard to stomach. So then he gets to the drums and he asks for, what do you know, double time swing. This is the same thing, obviously, that he's tested Andrew on and that Andrew has been practicing. So Connolly plays and then he has Andrew play and he cuts them off both really quickly. So then we come to the turning point of this scene and Fletcher says, drums with me. And when Connolly gets up and he's looking really smug, then Fletcher says, no, 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 other drums. And he means Andrew. And this is a huge life value shift, right? This is us going from, it's the opposite of that opening scene where we've went from now shame, right, to respect. And then, of course, just to finish up the scene, he tells him, you know, room B-16 tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., don't be late. And Andrew sits back down in his chair Uh, He looks very pleased with himself and, of course, the other drummer is really pissed. So what I want you to consider here is how effective would this scene be, right? This call to action scene, this call to adventure scene, how effective would it be if we hadn't already had that opening scene? And I'd argue that it wouldn't be very effective. Having a chance to witness the kind of mentor antagonist that Fletcher is in the first scene puts us on edge, like Andrew and everyone else, as we anticipate crossing paths with Fletcher again. And it makes Fletcher's behavior in this scene a progressive complication. Wow, he's even ruder this time. Also, we know he's looking for players. He tells us in scene one, he's listening behind the door, and then he enters after Andrew plays. And it seems that there's something about Andrew that intrigues him. And then there's the shift from shame both by Fletcher in scene one from his bandmates who have shit-talked about him behind his back to Connolly, the other drummer, earlier in another scene, and then of his own conductor in this scene. So we shift from that shame that's been established at all three of those levels to respect by Fletcher in front of everyone. And so this moment of respect means so much more because we had the first scene. And certainly, the way that everyone reacts when Fletcher first enters the room, the way he enters the room, not to mention the way he talks down to everyone, it certainly sets a tone, but it would not have been as personal to our protagonist without that first scene. The contrast of having that opening scene be a one-on-one, two-person scene that ends negatively and then having this scene be a group scene that ends positively is very, very effective. These two interactions with Fletcher are both setups for the big rehearsal scene that's to come at the end of the beginning hook. And oh my gosh, talk about progressive complications. So this story, among many other things, is a great example of a killer opening scene that both hooks the audience and does the important housekeeping tasks of the status quo. This would be opposed to other opening scenes that either introduce the status quo stuff but feels like a status quo, right, and totally puts us to sleep, or that kind of high-octane conflict scene that doesn't introduce what we need to be oriented into the world or the story. But when you can craft an opening scene that hooks us and informs us, that will make your audience very, very happy.
0: I think it's kind of neat we both focused on that opening scene of Andrew in the rehearsal room. And as I was watching it, Kim, I don't know if you had the same feeling. As writers, what we need to do is figure out what does this scene need to do? What's the function of it in the story? And then what natural setting in our protagonist's world would give rise to that? And I think that Chazelle really nailed it in Whiplash.
1: Yeah, I really love it when... We can get our problems defined so specifically, right? And when we start looking at these tools about what needs, what do we need to tell the reader first, second, third? And we can say, okay, I know that I'm in a performance story. I know that we're going to be dealing with respect and shame. And I know the kind of, mentor antagonist that I have? What's a great scene? I can create a little problem for myself to solve. What's a great opening scene that I can use that will do A, B, C, X, Y, Z? And giving yourself those constraints and then saying, how can I craft a scene that will do those tasks? It really defines the problem and then suddenly makes it so much more manageable and where I can actually find a solution, uh, something innovative and something fresh.
0: This is brilliant storytelling. That's all I have to say. Anne, you're going to talk about objects of desire. What have you got for us?
2: Well, I, I do have some objects of desire to discuss. I want to start by saying that some time ago, a few seasons back, we considered analyzing the movie Full Metal Jacket for the podcast, but we decided against it because it was simply too brutal for some of us to even watch. I personally felt very much the same way about Whiplash, and come to find out, I'm not the first person to see similarities between Fletcher, the abusive music teacher in Whiplash, and Hartman, the abusive sergeant in Full Metal Jacket. Um, Both characters represent a belief that testing the spirit of the student or recruit through verbal and physical abuse results in a better performer. Both of them are arguably psychopaths, and both films raise the question of whether a psychopath like that could possibly be right about that belief. Both stories represent that path to success as the only possible one, and leave us doubting whether a more positive, less punitive method can produce greatness, and I am struck once again by the similarities between performance stories and war stories. Now, as we've heard in the clip that Valerie played for us, that view is explicitly stated by the mentor, the antagonist in Whiplash, Fletcher. I found the story personally distressing because of that message, and I had a very hard time getting through it, let alone finding something instructive in it, but I did get there. This is a problem that I often run into when I either absolutely love a story or simply can't stand a story. It's very hard to be objective. And look at the structural elements of story as a writer. If all that's resonating in your head is your own emotional response to it, good or bad. But let me give it a try. Whiplash is effectively a two person story protagonist and antagonist, student and mentor, which I hope is very clear by now. Andrew does have a couple of rivals for the core drummer position, but neither one of them has any particular character. They're both there to demonstrate that there is a competition for the desired object, something like the third point of the triangle in a love story. Andrew's father and the very short-lived girlfriend serve important purposes, as uh, has been discussed, but they do have small roles. So there are really only two characters whose wants and needs the story has to deliver on, Andrew and Fletcher. Andrew's conscious want is shown and stated from the first scene. Seems very clear. We've been talking about that first scene. He wants to be a great drummer. He wants to succeed in the jazz music business. This is demonstrated in his sweaty, determined practicing, in the way he only listens to CDs of the masters, and in the revelation that he's a student at an elite New York music school. Now, later in the story, he expresses the degree of this desire, the price he seems willing to pay, in actually a very good meal scene. So let's have a listen to that.
1: I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anybody's idea of success. Dying... Broke and drunk and full of heroin at the age of 34 is not exactly my idea of success. I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34 and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90
3: and nobody remember who I was.
2: But within that very first scene that we've been talking about, which Kim played for us earlier, we see another want appearing. So we're still on the wants. We're not yet to the needs. Fletcher comes into his practice room and asks for a demonstration of a particular drumming technique. Andrew takes this person very seriously. He wants, wants, to impress him, to win with him. And for the rest of the story, these two desires to excel at his craft and in this business and to prove himself to Fletcher go hand in hand. He sees Fletcher's method as the kind of price he must pay to become like Charlie Parker. But what does Andrew need? Remember, objects of desire are both the conscious wants of the character and the character's subconscious needs it can't be said too often. The protagonist must become conscious of that subconscious need by the global crisis. In a prescriptive or positive story, which this arguably is, they embrace that need, even if it means giving up the want, the desire, because only through changing paths from want to need can they fully express their gifts. Now, in a cautionary or negative story, which I would argue this story also has elements of, the protagonist fails to recognize or change from the external want to the internal need, and therefore fails to attain either thing. Sometimes the need is more obvious to the reader or the viewer than it is to the protagonist, and boy, is this obvious from that very first scene. Andrew needs to stand up to the bullying mentor and take charge of his own path to success. Anyone who can watch that first scene and not question why he doesn't talk back or do something or defend himself, it wasn't wasn't me anyway. <laughs> Andrew, however, doesn't become fully conscious of that need until the final scene. It's that really impressive final scene. He literally almost dies. He certainly threatens his own well-being in order to achieve his conscious desire of impressing Fletcher. And that's in the scene before the competition where he wrecks his car and still goes on stage. He's bloody and he's nearly passing out and he can't perform. Now, in the climax of the middle build, he's been expelled from Schaefer for attacking Fletcher physically. The attack, which we see a very brief shot of, was the first time that Andrew has acted out against the bullying. But unfortunately, and this is important, it takes just as violent a form as Fletcher's own methods. And I, yeah, this is going to be really important. In becoming like the enemy, quote unquote, Andrew loses his place in the school. He seems to have lost his chance to gain his desire, and he's confronted with the opportunity, even the duty, to come forward with what he and other musicians have suffered at Fletcher's hands. After considering this offer carefully, which there's a few kind of nonlinear flashbacks, he says the fateful words to the investigator, just tell me what to say. He has decided to testify against Fletcher, which will get Fletcher fired. So he's taking some kind of power in this scene. And this is the beginning of his realization of what he needs, what he has needed from day one. It's to stand up against Fletcher and against the methods Fletcher represents. When he encounters Fletcher again, a little bit later at a jazz club in New York City, it's at the start of the ending payoff, Andrews seems to see Fletcher through wiser eyes he seems to see him without fear, but he still wants to impress him, and he still wants to be a star drummer, top of the heap. So he can't resist letting himself be manipulated one more time for the opportunity to join Fletcher's new ensemble. Now, Fletcher plays yet another mind game on him, which I think most of the audience can certainly see coming, By embarrassing himself, he Fletcher embarrasses himself and the whole band before a full house at Carnegie Hall just to humiliate Andrew, and that's he's showing his true stripes there. When Fletcher dismisses Andrew from the stage, it's the final turning point. Andrew leaves, but he gathers his courage when he's hugging his father, turns around and comes back onto the stage, and he simply takes over the performance. This is this dramatic and visible shift from want to need, and it's exactly what makes the story so satisfying uh, to the viewers who could stomach the rest of it. I was not one of them. But we also need to understand the antagonist's object of desire. Fletcher seems to believe that his methods are valid and will eventually produce one star, one Charlie Parker, as we heard in Valerie's clip. But that statement, that speech that he makes comes late in the story. I would also call it a speech in praise of the villain. How do we detect his this desire earlier? It's easy, through his appalling behavior from the very first scene. That behavior does signal a burning rage to get better music out of his band than they seem capable of, but it's so close to psychopathic that we can only conclude that maybe what he really wants is just to dominate and mindfuck his acolytes. That's All we see him doing. He runs hot and cold towards a favorite. He mistreats one musician to get another one to improve. He makes everybody in his band walk on eggshells to avoid his abuse. He even, and this scene really struck me, he fakes strong emotion while he tells about the death of that former student, which he lies about and says it was in a car accident. And we later learned that it was, in fact, a suicide. Fletcher's musicians show absolutely no pleasure in making music. This is very striking in the film. They're terrified, but they're also so grateful to be on his A-team that they accept every bit of his abuse, and they're just glad when the abuse falls hardest on somebody else besides them. Now, the very final scene, which I will totally admit is a great scene, it seems to suggest that Fletcher really did want to forge that one great jazz artist, because the story ends with him apparently seeding the whole performance, basically submitting to Andrew, and looking pretty happy about it. To me, that's the most difficult aspect of this story, and it's the one that makes it a kind of a cilantro movie that people either love or hate. Is it celebrating the effectiveness of a psychopath's violent methods in creating a great musician? It's unclear to me, but the answer does feel like yes, Andrew would not be the drummer he is in that last scene without the damage he did to himself to impress his already damaging mentor. I can certainly appreciate the triumph of Andrew's shift from the want to the need, that is, from wanting to impress Fletcher to taking charge of his own path to success, but I was left with the bad feeling that a true villain also got what he wanted and needed without any meaningful punishment. The real question I was left with in the film is this. Did Andrew ultimately succeed because of finally standing up to the psychopath Fletcher? Will he, too, end up suicidal? or is he to taking on some of those cold manipulative traits? I don't know whether Chazelle intended us to ask that question, but when I really examined the wants and needs of Fletcher, that's what I had to conclude. Fletcher creates suicides with his quote-unquote success method, but if those suicides live long enough to get famous or join the high ranks of the jazz world, that's okay with him, and it is explicitly okay with Andrew too, and I found that very difficult.
0: This is what I love so much about Story Grid. Even though this story was this film was really hard for you to watch and it sort of went against your grain, you're able to take the story grid tools and apply them objectively to the storytelling to find out what's working and what isn't working. That's that's why I love Story Grid so much. I mean, yeah, it's like the secret decoder ring for story, <laughs> but it allows us to take art, which is by its nature subjective, and Move, not remove the subjectivity but to place it to one side temporarily while we look at the structure absolutely brilliant stuff and yeah i mean you know we drank the kool-aid long ago okay we like to round up our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up so leslie what's your key takeaway this week
4: well my primary takeaway is in the details Chazelle said to film the intense drumming scenes, he used storyboards with lots and lots of crude drawings to help them achieve the camera angles that would allow them to transmit the story's meaning. They had a limited amount of time in which to shoot the film, so they needed to get these details right. So I'm recommending bringing this level of attention to your revision. When you're looking at the micro level, the details, I'm talking about scenes, I'm talking about beats, but also the line by line level of writing. To be clear, these are tasks of the later stages of revision, not when drafting or in the global revision stage. These details, though, add complexity to your story, making it memorable and rich enough to be worthy of rereading. Paying attention to the functional equivalent of camera angles and the blood, sweat, and tears of your story is the difference between a good story that works, which to be honest is no mean feat, and an extraordinary one that contributes to the global literary conversation on our human experience. My other takeaway is that performance stories are nourishing for writers, and they don't have to be about writing to give you the kick in the pants, or pep talk you need at the right moment.
1: Amen to that. So my key takeaway today is when crafting your story's opening, it's really important to identify that first obligatory scene and then intentionally introduce the elements the audience needs to know first in order for that moment to have the impact that it should. But we cannot merely tell that information Rather, we craft situations that allow the information to be naturally woven in and experienced by the audience in context. And an opening scene that hooks and informs is a rock-solid start to a story that works.
2: It absolutely is. I just want to reiterate that the primary lesson I learned from this story is that my subjective reaction to it almost stopped me from seeing some really basic, solid story principles at work. One of the dangers of studying and applying story grid methods is that it can make you see flaws in stories that you absolutely love. It's very sad. And make you see value in ones you absolutely hate, which just pissed me off. The disenchanting, this is a disenchanting of any particular story, is sometimes just the price we have to pay to get really good at analyzing, understanding, and writing good stories for ourselves. Though, I hope that deep study and analysis to get really good at story never has to involve physical violence or mental abuse.
0: <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> uh, for me, the, the key takeaways are really basic. For stories that have some kind of psychological element, shapeshifters are key. And even for stories that don't, the antagonist is still key because it's the villain that enables the hero to be heroic. Remember, villains are the heroes of their own stories. Okay, to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. And this week's question comes to us from Alyssa on Voicemail. Let's have a listen.
2: Hi, guys. Thanks so much for the podcast. I'm finding it really useful, and I really appreciate all the time you put into making such an amazing product. My question is about the performance genre. The core emotion in the performance genre is triumph, but one of the conventions of a performance genre is a paradoxical win-but-lose, lose-but-win ending, where the protagonist gains something and loses something, there's a clear sacrifice for the win, or a need is met in light of a loss. So I'm having a bit of trouble reconciling these two ideas, because when I think of core emotion being triumph, I think of like a clear win-win ending and the idea of having a win-but-lose ending while maintaining a core emotion of triumph getting me a bit stumped. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Thank you.
4: This is a great question, Alyssa. Thank you. Looking at this actually helped me refine my own thinking on this point. Now, as Sean says, the performance story concerns a life-changing pressure cooker moment when we must perform on demand and either attain respect or live in ignominious shame. Oh, goodness. I can feel the pressure already. Now, as you mentioned, the core emotion is triumph. And Merriam-Webster tells us that triumph is a state of joy or exaltation for success. And that does appear to contradict the idea of a win-but-lose or lose-but-win resolution. So let's get more specific. Another way to talk about performance stories is to say they are all about how we make sacrifices to attain one or more levels of respect, esteem, or what I'm calling positive regard. There are three levels to this positive regard, that which we hold for ourselves, that which we receive from the important people in our lives like our parents, our kids, our peers, our mentors, and that which we receive from everyone else. Notice that these sources of positive regard reflect the levels of conflict in a story too, intrapersonal, interpersonal, and extrapersonal. So a performance protagonist pursues mastery in their art or profession for positive regard, but they can't have it all. The actions we take to gain positive regard for one level won't necessarily gain us positive regard at another level. It's similar to the way you can get a product or service that is good, cheap, or fast, and you might meet two of those constraints, but you're never guaranteed all three. So the protagonist has to be willing to give up at least one of the sources of positive regard. They might get it back, but they have to be willing to sacrifice it. In Whiplash, as Valerie explained beautifully earlier, Andrew is focused on that second level of positive regard as the path to achieve the third level. If he gains the approval of Fletcher, then he'll be on his way to Lincoln Center. His pursuit of mastery isn't about pleasing himself or expressing his gift unconditionally. It's about expressing his gift to achieve positive regard from his mentor and future fans. He wants to become a legend. In order to be extraordinary and express his gifts unconditionally, he has to let go of this, or at the very least be willing to. Andrew chooses to embarrass his mentor publicly to regain his positive self-regard. And ironically, he gains grudging respect from his mentor as a result. So the f- source of the feeling of triumph in my mind comes from Andrew's willingness to stop trying to gain positive self-regard from his mentor. He's able to achieve the double swing and and that incredible performance because he lets go of his need for Fletcher's approval. And again, ironically, that's what earns him Fletcher's grudging respect. Thanks for your question, Alyssa.
0: And if you have a question about forces of antagonism or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. Alrighty, that wraps it up for this week. Thank you so much, Anne, Leslie, and Kim. Excellent as always. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to think about the forces of antagonism in your own story. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And if you want to get additional insight into whiplash, forces of antagonism, or other story principles, be sure to join my inner circle by going to valeriefrances.ca slash inner circle. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your friends about us. Your writer friends or your non-writer friends. <laughs> join us next time when Anne takes us down a whole new road on the podcast by beginning her study into the short story form in Wolves of Karelia. This is a 5,000-word tale of love and war by Arna Bonton-Hemenway. It's available to read online and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Why not give it a read this week and follow along with us? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.